Good morning. Today we'll be reading from 1 Corinthians 7, verses 25 through 40, and this can be found on page 956 in your pew Bibles. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do you seek to be, do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they have none, and let those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. This is God's word. You can all say an extra prayer as well as like, now he has to explain what that means. Mercy. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. And that when we open your word, it is your voice that we are eager to hear. And Lord, we do want to hear it. Even when uh, it can be confusing and challenging, we, look, we know, Lord, that you do not waste your breath. And so give us ears this morning. Uh, give us hearts ready to hear you and be changed. Uh, Help us love you, Lord, in the way that we not only listen to your word, but obey. We love you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus tells us it is more blessed to give than to receive. Uh, Based on the way that we often treat birthdays or or Christmas or other occasions uh, of gift-giving, I'm not sure that we actually always believe that. Uh, I'm not sure I always believe that. When you hold a present in your hand, uh, it's easy you know, to kind of get caught up in the excitement and anticipation of what it is we might get and, and lose sight of the bigger picture of the joy of giving and even of giving out of 
whatever it is we just received. Uh, sometimes we can love a gift that we receive so much that it actually damages relationships in our lives. Um, you think of the child who never lets uh, his or her siblings play with their new Christmas gift, you know, because it's mine, you know. Uh, the gift is all about me. It's, it's whatever I want to do with it. You know, what was given as an expression of love toward that child becomes a, an object of strife, a battleground among the family. We treat the gift that we receive as something that's just for me, exclusively for our own uh, pleasure or, or gain. Uh, and you put that in another way, we subtly begin to treat that gift like God. Not as a gift, but as something ultimate. Um, and so, so we can misuse our gifts, but we can go the opposite direction as well. Sometimes the gift we open is not the gift that we're looking for. And we can neglect what we've been given because we wanted something different. There's some different gift we're hoping in. Uh, every year, you know, you open the Christmas package and, and you're kind of hoping maybe this will finally be the year the Red Rider BB gun or, or, or the iPhone 6 or whatever it is, only to be met with more socks or whatever it is that's disappointing. And you're kind of rifling through the tissue paper, trying to fake a smile, looking for the gift receipt to see if it's in there, or wishing this were a Yankee swap or something like that. But you see, you're still treating the gift like something ultimate, but instead it's just something ultimate that you don't yet have. It's, it's not the gift you were looking for. And both of those reactions when we receive a gift, I think, reveal a common temptation to turn Jesus' words on their head to to look at the goodness of what we've been given not out of what we can do with it but what it can do for us it's a very self-centered view of what we've been given and when you apply that to the fact that the bible considers both marriage and singleness as gifts from god you can begin to see where some of the dysfunction and misplaced expectations about marriage or singleness can come from. The temptation to either use the gift exclusively for my own selfish gain, or else neglect the gift because I really wanted something else. And I want to think about that this morning, particularly with the gift of singleness. Looked at marriage last week. Today, I want to talk about singleness. And specifically, singleness in light of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and how that helps shape our understanding of what we do with this gift, uh, whether we want it or not. Now, when we step back and kind of think about the single life in, through the lens of the Western or, or progressive culture, the temptation that we face is usually the first one of those two options I just described, to, to treat the gift of singleness or of marriage as something that's ultimately about me. Uh, Tim Keller explains that in the West, we make an idol out of your individual rights and your individual happiness. I mean, yeah, marriage is fine as long as it meets your individual needs. Don't cut yourself off from too many options. Never get married before you got your career going. Why? Because marriage has to fulfill 
you. It has to be an asset in your portfolio. But what really matters is you. Self-realization is paramount, and marriage is just a means to an end. So the Western idea is that marriage is basically a disposable asset, something that you take up if you want, if it really helps you. And so in that view, as he describes it, which I think is a pretty accurate view of, of our Western world's views toward it, in that view, the, the goodness of singleness comes from the freedom that it gives you to live however you want, to do whatever you want, with whomever you want, no strings attached. So you're not tied down. Now, in traditional cultures, uh, including church culture, we tend to fall into the other temptation to leave the gift of singleness in the box because we were looking for something else. Uh, Keller continues, in non-Western traditional cultures, those cultures make an idol out of the family. You're nothing until you're married. You're a freak until you're married. You don't have a legacy. Your life hasn't really gotten started until you get married. And, and that's the culture that, you know, sadly many of us live in or have grown up in. This, this sense where we rightly make much of the goodness of marriage, but we wrongly do so at the expense of singleness and its goodness. It's not always intentional, but it very often happens. And it can cause singles within the church in particular to feel like second-class citizens, not really part of the life of the community. But the gospel of Jesus the good news of what Christ has done to, to establish God's kingdom, to deal with our sin, to, to make us one with Christ, but also one with each other, the gospel of Jesus gives us a much different view of singleness. One that both validates the goodness of it without the expense of marriage. It, it validates both, but it validates the goodness of singleness and it also empowers single living for Christ. And to help us see that, I want to look at 1 Corinthians 7 together. Now, 1 Corinthians 7 is an awkward chapter, uh, to say the least. There's some really difficult things to understand uh, in these verses. Uh, things that seem to be saying the quite opposite of what Paul said in Ephesians 5, which is what we looked at last week as we considered the drama of marriage, how, how marriage is a dramatic display of the gospel and therefore involves a dramatic participation in the gospel. When you read 1 Corinthians 7, you wonder if Paul was having a particularly bad day as a single man. Uh, you know, uh, he, he seems to say some pretty disparaging things about marriage. Uh, for instance, verse 27, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. Well, that's nice. Good to know it didn't sin. Uh, you know, it, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Or, or verse 38. So then he who marries his betrothed does well. 
and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. It's Paul here. Uh, He's not shy about his wish that more people were single like him. It says in verse 7, I wish that all were as I myself am. He still affirms the appropriateness of marriage in this passage, uh, but he almost seems to reduce its value as, as a, simply a means of guarding against sexual temptation. And if you go back earlier in the chapter, the beginning of, of chapter 7, he says in verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And then he adds in verse 6, now, as a concession, not as a command, I say this. Uh, marriage feels like a concession to those who are tempted to sin. And he says something similar in verses 36 and 37. If, if anyone thinks he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his own desires under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. It almost feels like Paul's basically saying, You weaklings who can't control your lust, go ahead and get married. The rest of us will be over here serving Jesus. It's kind of the the feel that he gives. And so what does this mean? What what is Paul really saying here? And how does it line up with what we just saw last week and, and the glory and goodness of marriage in Ephesians 5? Or with God's design for marriage clear back in creation, uh, that it was not good for the man to be alone, and, and, and so God gave marriage and so on and, and told him to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Is it okay for single people to want to get married? Uh, how do we think about what he very much holds high as a very valuable gift of singleness? Well, first, it's good to remember that Paul's goal here is not to add a new rule that people shouldn't get married. As, as big as he is on the value of singleness, he's very clear that he's not adding this new rule. He goes out of his way to say that. Uh, in verse 7, you know, he, he's, he's very strong in his affirmation of singleness. I wish that all were as I myself am. But he also recognizes that both marriage and singleness are gifts from God. And therefore, both of them are honorable. Uh, he says in the rest of the verse, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And he makes a similar clarification later in verse 35, where he's, uh, as he's illustrating the difficulty of marriage and the benefits of singleness, he says, I say this to your own benefit, not to lay any restraint on you. This isn't about adding more rules, uh, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So, so his goal here is not to add rules or restraints, but to move people closer to Christ. That's his goal. That's his heart in this, in this chapter. And it's Christ and his gospel that ultimately help us make sense of what he's saying, that give us the perspective we need for validating the goodness of singleness and empowering single living for Christ. Paul's whole discussion is framed in terms of what God has accomplished through the gospel. 
And that becomes clear in verses 25 to 31. So if you look there with me, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 25. You know, as is often the case in, in the second half of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his first letter, uh, he's responding to a specific question that that church has asked him. And you can tell when he's doing that whenever he says the phrase, now concerning, uh, which is an echo of, of uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So somewhere, this church has asked him his opinion on singleness, on the betrothed. Uh, the subject here in verses 25 to 40 is the betrothed. Now concerning the betrothed or the unmarried. Uh, in Greek, it's simply the word virgins. Uh, and sometimes in this passage, it seems to be talking about single people in general. Sometimes it seems to be talking about engaged couples. So he seems to be dealing with both of, of those categories, but people who are not yet married in general. And we don't know what their question was. Unfortunately, we're not told that, but we do have Paul's answer. And, and he's giving his answer not as some teaching that he picked up from Jesus, uh, but as his own judgment as one of the apostles of Christ, uh, which is you know, authoritative in its own right. And he gives us his general principle in verse 26. So look there, verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed man marries, uh, if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. So Paul lays out his general rule, remain as you are. Don't, don't try to get out of your marriage, and don't worry too much about trying to get into one. But notice why he says that, because that's kind of a, that's a bold rule. What, what's behind that? Well, notice why he gives this general rule right here. It has to do with what time it is. Look again at verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. So there's something about what time it is, what's going on, what's happening that shapes his counsel right here. What does he mean by the present distress? Uh, some have suggested that there was a famine in Corinth at the time. Or maybe it was a season of intense persecution. So you might think of persecuted Christians in Iraq or Syria. You know, if, if you're engaged to get married and ISIS is knocking on your door, now might not be the best time to worry about finishing the wedding. It's no sin if you do, but you're get, you already got plenty of problems to worry about the way it is. So, so some have, have understood it in that way. And I think it's very possible that there's some local crisis that, that um, strengthens the urgency of what Paul's saying here. But I also think that, that his instructions are based on something much more general and bigger perspective. And he spells that out in verses 29 to 31, which is where he tells us what he means by the present distress. So look at 29 to 31. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. 
And those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Normally, when you give an explanatory paragraph, it clarifies the point. This one seems to muddy his point a little bit. Uh, You can kind of begin to sympathize with Peter when he wrote about Paul's letters. Uh, There's some things in them that are hard to understand. Uh, So is Paul telling us to ignore our spouses or to skip out on funerals or birthday parties? Is that what he's saying here? No. The key here, again, is is understanding what time it is. Uh, Notice his emphasis on the time as he starts in verse 29. The appointed time has grown very short. And and how he ends in verse 31. For the present form of this world is passing away. Is he saying the world's going to end any day now? Not necessarily. What Paul means here is this. That Christians live today in the meantime, in between the cross and the new creation when Christ returns. What God promised to do in the end, he has already begun to do in part, in advance, through the life, death, and resurrection of his son Jesus. And so the promise of heaven has broken into the present through Christ. God's new creation has already sprouted, which means the present form of this world is already beginning to pass away. So we are to live as citizens in between these two worlds, the fallen world and the new world to come, with realities of both of them at play. That's why Paul can say later in this book, in chapter 10, verse 11, He can describe the church as those, quote, on whom the end of the age has come. And that means, basically, we need to live with an eternal perspective that that our current relationships, our current situations are not the end of the story. Uh, We have to live with this eternal perspective for all of life, and that's what Paul's trying to describe in his own way here, in verses 29 to 31. Uh, Tim Keller explains, I think, very helpfully, what this means is we do marry, we do buy and sell, we do have jobs, we do grieve, we do mourn, and we do rejoice. But we always do it right now in light of the future. So in light of the future, God is going to give you the ultimate wealth. So right now, whether you have money or not is not the biggest deal. If you have it, Great, but don't get too attached to it. If you don't have it, don't be too upset. It's not real wealth. You can weep, but at the same time, don't overdo it. Because everything's going to be made right in the end. And you can rejoice, but at the same time, don't overdo it. Because this isn't real joy. This is nothing like what you're going to get. This will never satisfy your heart. And so we we marry and and we rejoice and we do that, but we always do so in light of the fact that there is a future story that's going to complete what we're living in right now. And that gives perspective to how we think about the gifts we have today. The gospel gives an eternal perspective that validates the gifts that God has given us. 
encourages us to use them in the meantime without worshiping them as though they were ultimate or neglecting them as though God made a mistake when he gave them. Even the gifts of marriage and singleness. And that's what Paul's ultimately applying this eternal perspective to in chapter 7. And so marriage is still good in that it was designed by God and it's a display of his gospel. It is a reenactment of God's covenant love with his people, uh, a picture of Christ's commitment to his church. But marriage, Jesus tells us, is also momentary. Matthew 22, verse 30. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Which is hard to understand, but I can only assume that as good as marriage can be here, that union with Christ will be so much better. So marriage is designed by God to point us forward to that future marriage to come, the consummation of our union with Christ when he returns, the wedding supper of the Lamb at the end of time. When, as John Piper uh, puts it beautifully, the shadow will give way to reality, the partial will pass into the perfect, The foretaste will lead to the banquet. The troubled path will end in paradise. A hundred candlelit evenings will come to their consummation in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this momentary marriage will be swallowed up by life. Christ will be all in all, and the purpose of marriage will be complete. So there is an eternal perspective that ought to shape our views of both marriage and singleness. And if that's the case, again, uh, Tim Keller in his excellent um, talk he gave entitled The Theology of Singleness. So if it's something, if this is a topic you want to continue exploring af- afterwards, I would highly recommend it. But he, he says, the ultimate family is in the future. The ultimate wedding is in the future. The wedding supper of the Lamb. All of the deepest desires you have for love for closure, for acceptance, for unity, for security. And all of that will be satisfied on that day. And no earthly family and no earthly marriage can do anything more than be penultimate. It can be a foretaste. It can be a sign. It can be great. But if you don't have a family, don't get too upset. And if you do have a family, don't be too elated. And don't put too much of your hopes in it. That's the perspective. Once you see the idea that everything you do here, including being single and being married, has to be consistently done in light of the future and not acting as if this life is all there is, it changes everything. Changes everything. And so the gospel of Jesus, it validates marriage and it validates singleness. And so we need to be a people who honor both marriage and singleness as a church. So what does that look like, uh, specifically honor singleness? It means that we need to be a people who, who both make and help others make the most of that gift of singleness for Christ and his kingdom. As long as we have that gift, we need to make the most of it for Christ and his kingdom. Not leaving it in the box as though we're slightly embarrassed about it, and not just exploiting it and using it for our own selfish gain. 
Singleness can be really hard. It can also provide unique opportunities uh, that, that aren't possible in marriage. And that's another point that Paul wants to register here. And, and once again, it's, it's the gospel of Jesus. It's the good news of Christ and the grace of the gospel that empowers and fuels single living for Christ. And so there's three things I want us to see here in terms of how the gospel makes the most of single living for Christ. So the first is that the gospel gives us purpose in our singleness. The gospel gives us purpose. So again, what's the gift for? The world tells us it's all about you. The church sometimes makes us feel like we should leave it in the box. But Jesus tells us it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so the goodness of the gift is not always in what it gives me, but what I can do with it in serving others. And Paul tells us there's a whole lot you can do with the gift of singleness for the sake of the kingdom. Um, it offers a unique opportunity for what Paul calls, in verse 35, an undivided devotion to the Lord. Which I think first applies to our hearts, but also uh, secondly, to our availability for service for Christ. And Paul explains that in uh, verses 32 to 34. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please him. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. And so singleness provides this undivided devotion to the Lord. There's, there's less in the way in your dependence on Christ. Now, if we're not careful, this can sound a bit patronizing, uh, as if you know all single people have to do all day is just study their Bible and spend time with Jesus. And it's just, you know, whereas married people are in counseling and cleaning up kid vomit and, and all sorts of other things. Uh, you know, it, it could be easy to think, you know, single people have it easier when it comes to walking with Jesus. They just, they just get to hang out. Their roommate is Jesus. That's awesome. I have to live with this person, you know. You know, when I was in grad school, um, Several of my fellow students were single and would sometimes make the comment, you know, I don't know how you do this being married and having a kid. To which I would reply, I don't know how I would do it without my wife. When I get home from studying all day, I don't have to think about what I'm going to eat or, or about doing laundry or about these things. She just takes care of those things. It's amazing. And, and so sometimes married people can, can slip into the idea that because uh, not all singles have a dependent that they have less responsibility and less things to worry about, when in reality they can have more responsibility because they're the only ones there to do it. And we need to really keep that in mind. But here's Paul's point about undivided devotion. It's easier to turn a spouse into an idol than a friend. It's easier to turn a spouse into an idol than a friend. Now, anyone can turn anything into an idol, into a false god, something ultimate that you look to instead of the Lord. But it's a lot harder to do that 
with a friend than it is with a spouse. Um, Again, Keller makes this point. In general, friendship more naturally becomes unselfish. But when you get married, you want to be fulfilled. And if you are not fulfilled, you just blow up. We, We can so easily turn that spouse into an object of worship The gift of singleness, as Paul describes it here, is that you have less competing for your heart and allegiance. There's only one person you're aiming to please, the Lord Jesus Christ. And and that's not a consolation prize. That's not, you know, a secondary thing that you're just going to have to figure out how to get used to. That's the main thing of walking with Christ, devotion to the Lord. That's what life is about. And so there is a, the gospel gives purpose to singleness in that it helps zero in the focus on Christ himself. So that's one of his points here. And, it, and that also, I think, has implications then for one's flexibility and focus uh, in serving Christ. Singleness affords a flexibility and focus that's simply not possible for married people. Uh, You can think of modern-day examples like John Stott or Mother Teresa. Uh, You can think of Paul himself and all that he was able to accomplish for the kingdom as a single person. Uh, I've told this story before, but I had a few friends back at the college church in Wheaton when we lived there who, upon graduating college, went to the missions pastor and said, we want to go somewhere dangerous. We can do that right now. We're not married. And they did. They went to a dangerous context in western China working among Muslim minorities. And they were free to do that because they didn't have to worry about the safety of a family and a spouse. But even at home, there are unique opportunities for undivided devotion to the Lord and, and flexibility in serving the kingdom that we need to just think about what can I do during this season that God's given me to make the most of my singleness for Christ whether that's singleness during high school, during college, or at any stage in life. How do I make the most of this for Christ? Single, the gospel empowers single living by giving a purpose to it, it right? focusing on the kingdom of Christ. But then second, the gospel also empowers single living because it gives us a family. The gospel gives us a family. Not only should we have an eternal perspective on marriage and singleness, but also on our families as well. Namely, that our biological family is temporary, but our heavenly family is eternal. And that's a category that we sometimes don't often think about. But it's a point that Peter makes in 1 Peter 1, 22 through 23. He says, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, that's human seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And so the gospel makes us family. It unites us with each other and with Christ, our betrothed. And that has implications for how families relate with singles. Uh, which is a very simple question. Do you treat them as family? 
Do you love them and include them in your life like family? Not as a project or an object of pity, but as a sister or a brother. Because that's what they are in Christ. They're your sister and your brother. And so the gospel makes us family. We need to keep that perspective in mind. It also has implications for how singles relate with families and married people. You don't have to do this all on your own. We love you. We want to be part of your life. We're here. It's okay to ask for help. And when we invite you over, you're not a third wheel. We love you and want to include you in our life. We want to hear your story. We want to learn from you because you're family. We need to believe that. And the fact that the gospel makes us family also has implications for how singles relate to each other in terms of, of friendship uh, and encouragement, and partnership in the gospel, the fact that marriage is not the only human relationship in which we're able to have intimacy with one another. Deep bond of, of sisterhood and brotherhood. You think of, of the band of brothers that were, that were the 12 disciples of Christ. The deeply intimate relationship. It also has implications as well for dating, should the Lord open that door. Do you recognize that the person you're dating is your brother or your sister? And that that, that matters in how we then treat them. There's a lot of confusion, a lot of baggage about the world of dating today. Uh, a lot of that's trickled over into the church. Some of it has come from the church. Uh, conservative uh, confusion from conservative ideas, which can tend to create, you know, a legalistic view of dating, uh, from progressive sides, which can be dangerously permissive in in their views. But the fact that the gospel makes us family gives us perspective here to think about dating as well. Uh, and I'm thinking specifically about sexual boundaries in dating. When you look at the Bible, there are only three categories of human relationships in the Bible. There's husband, wife, there's family, and there's neighbor. And every relationship in the Bible you can see fitting into one of those three categories. And the Bible's very clear about what sexual interaction should look like in those three categories. It's commanded for marriage. Read the first part of 1 Corinthians 7. It's commanded for marriage. And it's prohibited for both family and neighbor, which is pretty obvious for us. But what's happened today is we've kind of created a fourth category of human relationship called boyfriend-girlfriend or whatever you want to call it. And then we've tried to wedge it into those three categories, somewhere between husband and wife and neighbor. And then we go to the Bible looking for standards on uh, how should we treat each other and, and what's okay and how far is too far and so on and so forth. And we get frustrated at the Bible's silence. But the standard's very simple. And tell your husband and wife you are either family or neighbor. And in Christ, you're actually both family and neighbor, which means no sexual interaction. Now, we could talk about that over coffee or, or whatever, uh, but here's a, a simple guide. If, if you're asking these questions and thinking about this or thinking about how to, how to teach and coach your children on this, Whatever it is you want to do with your boyfriend or girlfriend, would you do that with your brother or sister? 
If the answer is no, then the answer is no. Which might sound prudish, but remember what the gift is for. It's not for your own personal gratification. It's for helping this person make much of Christ. And part of our devotion to Christ is honoring our brothers and sisters, not using them or taking advantage of them, but helping them make much of Christ. And, and if that's too hard for you, the Bible also has a solution. Get married. That's what Paul says in verse 9. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to be aflame with passion. He says the same thing in verse 36. If anyone thinks he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. So we need to have this perspective that the gospel makes us family, and therefore that matters how we treat each other in the body of Christ. And that singleness is a gift to be used, not neglected or abused. But embracing one's singleness uh, doesn't mean that you can't or shouldn't long for marriage. It just means you shouldn't idolize it. That's all. Recognize it's a gift. It's not God. Bethany Jenkins reflects on this point. While I may never be content with my singleness, I can know God's joy in my singleness. I can give thanks for it. I can use it to bless others. But I'm not going to waste time feeling guilty that I still desire marriage. In fact, I'm going to view this unfulfilled desire as a parable of the holy discontentment we should feel until Christ returns. There's nothing wrong with longing for it. And that brings us to the final way that the gospel helps us make the most of single living. It's that the gospel gives us hope. The gospel gives us hope. None of us know uh, what turn our personal stories are going to take. Uh, we may have longings that will be gloriously fulfilled in the near future, and we may have longings that will never be realized this side of heaven. But what we do know is that this life right now is not the end of the story. Whether or not we participate in the shadow of marriage here and now, if we belong to Christ, we are guaranteed to participate in the reality, the glory of our eternal union with Christ in the new heavens and whatever our gift is. It's a hope that frees us to pursue an undivided devotion to the Lord, a hope that fuels sacrificial living and service in the meantime, and it's a hope that we all share in together, whether we're married or single, parent or child, and, and this is what's amazing, it's a hope that we share together with Christ, our betrothed, Think about it. Jesus himself, the perfect human being, the ultimate expression of perfect humanity, didn't feel the need to get married in order to exhibit perfect humanity. Which means that he also lived in wondrous hope and joy at the prospect of that future wedding supper of the Lamb. It was enough for him, too. 
So the gospel of Jesus validates singleness. What we can so easily disparage in the church, the gospel says, no, this is good. This is good. So is marriage, but this is good too. It's not without challenges, but it does have unique opportunities. And the gospel not only validates it, but it empowers single living. It gives us purpose, and it gives us a family in which to live out that purpose, and it gives us hope that that purpose will come to glorious completion. And so may we walk together as a family in Christ, together seeking that purpose. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, we thank you that there's not a single corner of life left untouched by the changing power of your grace. And Lord, even though um, our hearts have different reactions to the situations we find ourselves in, Lord, some of us here are single because we're young and still in school. Some of us are single because we haven't met the right person. Some of us are single because our hearts have been broken and we're too scared. Some of us are single because of tragedy, either divorce or death, and we never thought we'd find ourselves in this status again. But Lord, you know every heart and you love every heart, and you are able to help make purpose and meaning of wherever station you call us to in life, Lord. And so I pray that that gospel would give us the perspective and hope that we need, that you are with us, that you're not done with us, and that we have work to do in the meantime of seeking you and serving you as your children, as part of your family. And so, Lord, may we be filled with your spirit to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.